driving on a motorbike with a local fixer, really rough guy, fantastic, built like a brick house on this old motorbike. And we were going through the favelas and doing um, photo shoots. We'd went on a freeway to get to one of the other favelas and we turned off the freeway on this exit ramp. As soon as we turned the corner, we saw a cop car. And I had been listening to some tunes and um, didn't have my helmet on. He didn't have a helmet on. He didn't have a license. He didn't have a license to carry a passenger. I look at that scenario and there's a range of outcomes that range from him being detained in some form. That would be rather extreme. Um, definitely we're going to be fined. Maybe I could get my passport taken. Possibly his motorbike might be kind of confiscated and he would have to pay to get it out. And so we got waved down. There's no one else around, right? So just two cops, my gruff driver and me. And they're standing there and they're kind of, you know, they beckoned me over and I threw a 5D Mark II with a 16mm to 35 lens on it. So it's quite a chunky camera. I threw it about six foot at him. <laughs> and uh, he, he caught it. The cop caught it. And he looked at his colleague and he looked at me and you could hear the gears whirring. It's like, we were going to shake him down, but he's just given me something, <laughs> this, this expensive piece of equipment. I wonder if we're on TV. And he ended up taking a photo of me and the driver and then just waved us off. Yan Chipchase cares about uncovering genuine insight and is willing to go to great lengths to get it. In a previous life as executive creative director at a major global design firm, he specialized in deriving insights from mainstream and emerging markets. Now, he's founder of Studio D Radio Durans, whose name provides insight into the nature of his work. D Radio Durans are highly resistant forms of bacteria present in a multitude of environments rich in organic materials, places like soil, but also feces and sewage. It's so resilient it can survive doses of radiation and can even repair DNA. Much like D. Radiodurans, Yan's work takes him to extraordinarily diverse and often extreme parts of the world where resiliency is a key requirement. In this episode, we talk about finding insight in unexpected places and the value of small. So uh, I run a consultancy and I work for organizations that invest in an individual and teams to get to a particular outcome. So there's always an expectation of something being delivered. All consultancies, it's a far sharper expectation because you get paid for something and there is a deliverable at the end of it. The thing that frustrates me with a lot of consultancies and the thing that really surprised me when I joined a large consultancy was the extent to which creative processes, the things that I felt were inherent within me, were formalized to the point where they could be rapidly scaled. And I was very surprised at how crass that process was. I believe that what most consultancies sell is not creativity per se or innovation per se, but they sell a highly de-risked version of it. And in doing so, they actually strip a lot of the creativity out of it. You've kind of experienced the gamut. You've been on the inside of a big company. You've been a very large consultancy. And now you're in a small, as you would describe it, responsive new company. 
presumably there's a trajectory that you're following as a result of those subsequent or previous experiences. Why small? So the primary reason was to avoid the pressure of having to take on projects that would not be creatively fulfilling. In retrospect, it was a smart move because it enabled me to change the business I was in literally overnight. So when I started Studio D, was a consultancy. And we're doing little bits of publishing, but nothing major. And then with the book being published, if that was the only business, I could live off it, for this year at least. Then I have a luggage brand where we make specialized field equipment for the work that we do, and we make some of that available for sale. And that was a hobby for a number of years, and it's bloomed into a small business. And maybe we'll make it into a medium-sized business over time. We'll see. So I don't have the pressure to, to kind of force that. And then finally, we just started offering retreats, so three-day retreats and workshops and actually expeditions as well. So we have expeditions to Afghanistan and Pamirs coming up. There'll be some risks involved, but actually dealing mentally processing and the practicalities of processing those kind of risks are actually part of the fun of running the project and is part of the learning experience. And I think if I had employees, I would have just been doubling down on what the consultancy was or is, what it means to build out an organization. And, and, and there's pros and cons to it. But for my mindset and my stage in my life where I'm trying to figure out all these different things, it's actually been very healthy. That's not to say in a year's time we wouldn't have an office and have staff. There would be, need to be a good reason to kind of invest in that. Um, but it's a choice. It's not a must-have. It's relatively easy money to be paid to do similar things that you've done in the past, right? But creatively, it's not particularly challenging. I have a principle, which is to kind of not do the same thing more than twice, if I can get away with it. I feel there's a bit of a tension, a productive tension, between a highly process-driven, very thorough, measured, systematic approach to uncovering whatever you want to call them, truths, insights that turned into wisdom, etc., that's juxtaposed against this hunger for those unknown experiences that are challenging you every time you go on into one of these unexpected experiences. Tell me about the relationship between your process and how it interfaces with these unknown new things. So the, the advantage of a process is you can bring other people in and can get to some point of productivity that you know you can work with and deliver a thing. But... I am ultimately stimulated by new experiences, as most people are, but I think probably more than most. And for me, a lot of that stimulation comes from being in environments where I'm out of my depth. And on a global scale, that's pretty broad in terms of experience. And it's actually one of the reasons why I really enjoy being and working at the extremes of society. So extreme poverty, extreme wealth, extreme altitudes and so on is because it pushes me to further my craft, which I'm still trying to figure out what that is. But You've published a book um, recently called Field Study Handbook, and it's you know, a compendium of everything you've learned as a field researcher in design and understanding human experience. And it's amazing how you found yourself in several situations that you know, are pretty risky, I'd say, and, and, and even scary. I was just wondering if you could describe, you know, one of the maybe more harrowing moments of your uh, field research career? I was doing a project in Bolivia, 
and I was traveling with a driver and one other person. And there was a miners' strike, which happens quite a lot in Bolivia, and um, roadblocks, and basically the entire country was shut down in terms of mobility. And being in a four-wheel drive, we my driver's like, oh, let's go around the roadblocks. And so, and we managed to get so far, but then realized that we would actually have to go through one of these roadblocks. And the miners had seen us trying to circumnavigate their roadblock, right? So they were a bit pissed. And there'd been, it was probably day three or four of the strike. And so there's a lot of them in tents and they're doing nothing but sit around and some of them are getting drunk. And so just imagine quite a few angry, drunk males. And so as our car pulls in, stones start to, start to get thrown and we come to a halt. Someone smashes a bottle or two and the broken glass gets put under our wheels so we can't reverse off and the driver gets out and the other person in the car was blonde haired female so a lot of angry males some drunk in that situation so I stepped out of the car with the driver the driver's trying to negotiate with them and I cannot speak a lick of the local language I'm obviously a foreigner and there's a lot of jostling around and someone's very, very aggressively jabbing and they're looking in the car and they're looking at the lady in the car is starting to feel very threatened. And I had my camera. I took my camera and I literally threw it underarm at a gentleman who was a bit aggressive. And the natural reaction when someone throws something to you is to either shield yourself or catch it, right? So, so now he has something to do. And then I walked up to someone who looked like the leader just went up to him and put my arm around him and said, take my picture, right? And, you know, that's a, it's a universal language. Most people know what a camera is. Most people know the body language of posing for a shot. And so that's an example of a situation, particularly crowd situations, where it's very easy for them to spin out of control. And no matter how much you think you might be able to manipulate things, there's a shitload of things that are out of your control. There is a risk and there's a split second or so where the crowd is trying to figure out what's go- how it's going to react, right? And I love ascertaining those moments and trying to find exactly the right thing to do in that moment to be able to get myself and my colleagues from one could happen through to something that has a positive outcome. a bit like handing someone a gun right you know like here you go it shows an inherent trust and it changes the equation and it changes the dynamic completely another one happened in brazil driving on a motorbike with a local fixer really rough guy fantastic built like a brick house on this old motorbike and we were going through the favelas and doing um, photo shoots and we'd we'd went on a freeway to get to one of the other favelas and we turned off the freeway on this exit ramp and so we couldn't see what was off the exit ramp but as soon as we turned the corner we saw a cop car and I had um, I had been listening to some tunes and um, didn't have my helmet on he didn't have a helmet on he didn't have a license he didn't have a license to carry a passenger I look at that scenario and there's a range of outcomes that range from him being detained in some form. That would be rather extreme. Um, Definitely we're going to be fined. Maybe I could get my passport taken. Possibly his motorbike might be 
kind of confiscated and they would have to pay to get it out. And so we got waved down. There's no one else around, right? So just two cops, my gruff driver and me. And they're standing there and they're kind of, you know, they beckoned me over and I threw a 5D Mark II with a 16 mil to 35 lens on it. So it's quite a chunky camera. I threw it about six foot at him. <laughs> and uh, he, he caught it, the cop caught it. And he looked at his colleague <laughs> and he looked at me and he looked at his colleague and he could hear the gears whirring. It's like, we were going to shake him down, but he's just given me something, <laughs> this, this expensive piece of equipment. I wonder if we're on TV. And he ended up taking a photo of me and the driver and then just waved us off. And we got back on the motorbike. We went around the corner and it was in a graveyard. And the, the driver <laughs> just pulled into the graveyard, turned off the engine, <laughs> got out a cigarette <laughs> and started smoking. It's like... What the fuck just happened there? <laughs> Scenarios where things could just turn out in a particular way, and it's just about timing and understanding how the dynamics work, understanding the range of possible outcomes. Like for me, the best possible outcome in that scenario would be that evening I would be in a bar or in the house of that cop having dinner with his family, right? You know, kind of best case scenario. Worst case scenario, someone's locked up or whatever. And so there's this range of possibilities in between and being comfortable enough to know that those worst case scenarios are not that frightening, that time-based and the money-based, the th things that can be replaced. And actually the experience of it can be very positive in itself as a learning experience. Right? So even if there's a negative outcome, you can learn from it. Where does that come from, that need to be in those moments? Um, I think it's the essence of life for me. That's where I feel very alive. I kind of feel that it's pretty rare to embrace those moments and kind of decode them. I've been fortunate enough that that's what I do for a living, right? So when those moments arise, I see them as these kind of wonderful experiences and I embrace them. This spring and fall, some of the world's top creative minds tell it like it is and explore the deep truths of design at Design Thinkers. Design Thinkers is an annual conference for like-minded people and offers in-depth analysis of trends and best practices in design. On May 29th and 30th in Vancouver and October 24th and 25th in Toronto, join a community of people passionate about creative communications and go deep into the truths of design. For more information, visit www.designthinkers.com. Your next chapter includes... Part of it includes exposing others to perhaps a higher degree of likelihood that they will have moments like that too. But what would you say to the person who's working in a city and hasn't done a lot of traveling, feels as though they need, they have an urge to pursue this kind of experience, but perhaps struggles to make the link between being potentially in a viscerally dangerous situation, how that will apply to their, their lives back home? So first of all, I, I, those situations aren't particularly I mean, the first one in Bolivia, that could have been very dangerous, but the second one, problematic, but not dangerous, right? I mean, if, if you're thinking about maybe becoming a better traveler and being better able to cope with what the world throws at you, you start at home. You start with just sit in some kind of social space and just observe and just ask why? For everything that you see, why is this person dressed? Why do people have shoes on? Why are they standing in twos and threes? 
Why is that person backing away? How much eye contact is made? When people touch each other, is it shoulders or chest or how are they physically interacting? And just ask why and then start decoding from there. Start at home and then when you travel abroad, you can apply the same set of questions. And when you have that comparison from what you think you know to another place, that's where you start to see the universals of human behavior. And then you start to see the kind of layers of culture on top. So we're able to kind of ascertain the differences and similarities between cultures, which our clients find useful because then it allows them to better anticipate how their products and services will be used in a particular environment or if their product or services are already in the environment, it allows them to better understand the motivations why people are using it. And they're not always the same. Let me give you an example. This was actually a project for Visa a number of years ago in Rwanda. And I was interviewing a farmer, a lady in a small village, and she had helped bring electricity to her village. And it's quite rare to be able to ask people, you know, what was life like before, before electricity, right? But it was still fresh in their minds. What is the biggest change since she had electricity? And what, what do you think she answered? I would always imagine it goes back to basic things like light. Yeah, I would think so that. I would anticipate that or TV. And she said, uh, the Biggest change is that when I visit my relatives, the journey to them takes an hour longer. And it was entirely like, where did that come from? And then she got up and she beckoned for me to follow. We were doing the interview outside, kind of in the outside line, and as the dusk was falling. So she led me into her living room. And in the corner of her living room, there was a Phillips iron. And then she said, when I travel to visit my relatives, I get up an hour earlier, I iron my clothes her Sunday best. And when she's on the bus visiting her relatives, everyone on the bus can see the creases in her dress and they understand that her village has electricity. So that is electricity as status symbol projected through the creases in her dress that she would be able to use a traditional iron to get those creases with hot coals, but it would take way more than an hour. It would probably take three hours and wouldn't be worth it. Right, to be able to get that done. So here's an iron, a thing that you think what you know what it's used for, but actually, you know, the, the actual use and the actual value to the community or the individual is significantly tangential to what uh, you might imagine. And there's just so many examples of that that are out there. And it's only by being in context and understanding the contextual conditions of that that you can decode that. I, I think I'm addicted to experiences, new experiences. Or something close to, I, I certainly thrive off new experiences, whether it's a truly addiction, I don't know. And it gives me a lot of energy and it opens my mind to new ways of thinking about things. And I think there's probably a bodily chemical reaction that's in there as well that I find very kind of life-affirming. Being human and reveling in human interaction, immersed in that and being given the time professionally to understand what it means is probably one of the biggest privileges that I've had in my career and life. To find out more about Yen, visit studiodradiodurans.com. 
Also check out his line of super resilient travel gear at sdrtraveler.com and follow him on Twitter at Yan Chip. First Things First is produced by Max Cotter. Frontier Media is a part of Frontier, a design office based in Toronto, Canada. We believe that design is more than visual. It's a process of exploration, discovery, sketching, prototyping, iteration, and refinement. That process can help create a better world. Our mission is to help others understand how that goal can be accomplished. To do this, we use design to create better and more purposeful products. We publish a magazine and produce this podcast to explore and celebrate the risks people take in the process of creating things that are original and worthwhile. And we work with clients to help them define their purpose and tell their story. To learn more, visit www.frontier.is. First Things First is recorded in Toronto and Vancouver at the Design Thinkers Conference, organized by our founding partners at RGD, the Association of Registered Graphic Designers, who represent over 3,800 design practitioners, including firm owners, freelancers, managers, educators, and students. Through RGD, Canadian designers exchange ideas, educate and inspire, set professional standards, and build a strong, supportive community dedicated to advocating for the value of design.